Open your Bibles, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, page 857, if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. While you're turning there, and as we continue this new series in the Gospel of Luke, that will will resume in the new year as well. It's not just a Christmas series. I want you to remember that Luke's purpose for writing this gospel, as he recorded back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, includes this thought that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so Luke, in one sense, is bringing out a number of witnesses and telling the story that he has collected from those witnesses first-hand accounts, eyewitness accounts, uh, and set them in order so that his friend Theophilus, specifically that he names at the outset of this gospel, and generations like us would have certainty. Now in Luke 1, God sends Gabriel to announce the coming birth of two sons. And in our first message, we noticed that the announcement of the first son was given to the old and barren couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were blessed with a son named John, whose name means God is gracious. And his birth actually raises the excitement and interest of the community that Elizabeth and Zechariah are part of to where they actually ask with, with great expectation and eagerness, what then will this child be? And if you remember, Zechariah's prophecy fills in the blanks and, and tells us very specifically that John, this child born to this old couple, will be the prophet of the Most High, and he will prepare the way for Messiah. Now, Luke 1 also includes Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she too will bear a son And he, though, will be the son of the Most High. Not just a prophet, not just a powerful spiritual figure, but the actual son of the Most High. And last week we spent time looking through the the miraculous nature of that conception and even, as we'll see today, the birth. Now, part of what makes this gospel account of Luke so extraordinary is that among his first witnesses that he rolls out are two women, And you should know that in the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. And as author and theologian Justin Taylor notes, uh, there are other examples given from non-biblical sources like Josephus, who is a Roman Jewish historian, and we don't have reason to believe that he was a follower of Jesus in the faith, but he, among others, said that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because... Quote, quoting uh, Josephus, the, because of the levity and boldness of their sex. I mean, ladies, doesn't that kind of like yank your chain a little bit? It should. That's typical of that generation, of that non-biblical culture, honestly. Uh, Celsus, the second century pagan philosopher and critic of Christianity, actually mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged resurrection witness, referring to her as a, quote, hysterical female deluded by sorcery. And that just gives you a little feel for how this gospel would actually strike many people in that present day when Luke wrote it, middle of the first century. Like, why, why would he be bringing forth women as some of the first witnesses to these events. Well, you know what? The, the culture itself may not have an appreciation for a woman's testimony, but God does. 
Because from the beginning, he created male and female, both in the image of God, both equal in value and worth and importance before him. And here, even at the outset of the gospel, the Lord is actually taking a culture that had been turned upside down by sin and and thinking processes and valuations that were placed by uh, one gender on another, and he is writing it in the life and birth of Jesus. So from the beginning of the gospel to its end, Luke calls upon the testimony of multiple surprising witnesses, and we're gonna encounter more this morning. You follow along as I read Luke 2, verses one through 20. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the gospel story, and we bow before you in heart, in soul, in mind, and in spirit this day to acknowledge, first of all, that you are Lord of all, the sovereign King, the one who has given us life, who sustains us moment by moment, each breath, each heartbeat. These are gifts from your majestic hand. Thank you. We also bow before you today to acknowledge that our sin is great but where sin has abounded there's not one area of life that is not touched and affected and sometimes terribly so but where sin has abounded your word teaches us grace superabounds and so we ask that again on this day you would give us that abundant supply of grace that we may believe your word as you have, have, have entrusted it to us, that we may obey it fully as you instruct us in our souls and in our hearts. 
that you would transform us by it, that we may become the people you have always intended us to be. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that Jesus is Christ the Lord. Thank you that the Spirit you have sent at his departure is the holy God of glory. We worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and pray for your presence with us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to summarize verses 1 through 7 in about three minutes here because we want to move to verse 8 and the shepherds specifically. But did you notice this, how God in his great power and sovereignty uses the unexpected events of our lives to accomplish his purposes. Now that's a mouthful, but here's what I'm speaking of. When this, when this famous portion of scripture begins with those words, in, the days, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I want you to think about what was really transpiring and put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a moment or in Mary's position and recognize that this was a significant inconvenience, if not an outright oppression. Joseph, we know, was a carpenter. He didn't get, you know, 28 days of PTO where he could just call in and say, hey, keep the paychecks coming. I got to make a little trip up to Bethlehem and take care of some business. That was a great inconvenience for him. He's losing no less than, probably when it was all said and done, a week's wages. Mary, who is at, I mean, she's full term. And some of you ladies have been there recently and your doctor says, no travel, don't take the chance. Stay home, stay still. Let's just get this baby here. And Mary's gotta go with Joseph because some knucklehead in Rome decides he's gonna register all of his citizens and you know what's clearly in view? He's probably gonna impose another heavy tax on them. So this is a very stressful time for Mary and Joseph. As a carpenter, he's losing precious work time, maybe even falling behind his schedule. Mary, as I said, should not be traveling at this late state in her presence, in, in her pregnancy. And you know, if they circumvented Samaria, which apparently was the common uh, travel practice for Jewish people in that day, this was a 90-mile trip. It was a minimum three days there, which means it's a minimum three days back. And oh, by the way, she does in fact have a baby in the middle of all of that. It's easy to just read through that and think sweet thoughts and have sentimental you know, pictures rolling through your head. This is an intensely stressful time. Maybe it was a bit of reprieve from all the gossip that was beginning to emerge in Nazareth, and that was gossip and outright slander that Mary was gonna endure all the days of her life. Pregnant? Joseph's not the dad? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, that you, you told us the Holy Spirit conceived this baby. <laughs> where should these people go? Well, actually, God uses us to get them exactly where he wants them to be. And that's when you come to the next little portion and you read that they land in Bethlehem. And we read this passage of scripture earlier in the service. This is the fulfillment of a 750-year-old prophecy. God himself said, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands, Messiah is going to be born there. Just a little sidebar for your encouragement that you can fully trust the divine, eternal plans and purposes of God. 
I know some of you are in difficult circumstances at the moment, and you're trying to sort it all out, going, what, what is this about? We're actually trying to honor God, do his will, follow the things that we understand, but man, it is not going well. You know, everything from job losses to unexpected illnesses, from flat tires to corrupt politicians, serve God's greater purposes. Second big point. God announces the the good news to unlikely people. Now look at verse eight. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. You can go back and study this, but these shepherds are people of questionable reputation. Now, we don't know these shepherds specifically, so I'm talking in a general class, but if you, if you go back and do a little digging, read the historians, read even the present-day commentators who've done all that digging for our benefit, and I'm just gonna quote one right now, Leon Morris, who's with the Lord now, but long uh, recognized as, as a great Bible scholar and just a lover of Jesus, but he wrote, as a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. The nature of their calling kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which meant so much to religious people. That's the irony. They're out actually tending these flocks, and and it's probably lambing season, and because of their proximity to Jerusalem, there's a strong possibility that the lambs they're tending at this particular moment are going to end up in the temple precinct being offered to God in, in in uh, spiritual services of worship, but they themselves are defiled because of the work they do every day and can't actually go to the temple. Don't know that for sure, but that is part of the history here. Now, Leon Morris goes on to say, uh, so that the nature of their calling kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which meant so much to religious people. More regrettable was their unfortunate habit of confusing mine with thine as they moved about the country. Apparently they have sticky fingers. And as a group, they were known for stealing. It's taking what's available. He goes on, finally, they were considered unreliable and they were not allowed to give testimony in the law courts. Oh, we've just heard that from some other historians about women like Elizabeth and Mary. So the, the third set of witnesses that Luke rolls out their, their testimony wouldn't stand up in a court of law. Interesting uh, that the Lord would choose them, though, to move his testimony of the Savior's birth forward. There's no reason for thinking that Luke's shepherds were other than devout men, else why would God have given them such a privilege, but they did come from a despised class. Culturally despised and day in and day out regarded as ceremonially defiled. Do you ever feel like you are despised? Do you ever feel like you have some kind of defilement that keeps you uh, out of the center of the neighborhood or the community fellowship or the respect of others? Many of us do or at least have. And while the shepherds may have been viewed by their friends and neighbors similarly, God viewed them differently and he views you differently. Now look at where the sacred text leads us. Not only are they people of 
questionable reputation. They're actually people with every reason to be afraid of God. Look at verse nine. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. To say they were terrified is not an overstatement. Now, if you look back at the stories of those who encountered angels like this or who encountered the glory of the Lord, they are characteristically overwhelmed with fear and literally driven to the ground. Let me give you some examples. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, as he is tasked with leading Israel into the, into the promised land and all that went with that, uh, Joshua actually encounters the commander of the Lord's army. And in verse 14, it's recorded, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? You come to Isaiah 6. Verse 5, where Isaiah, as a young prophet, has been ushered into the heavenly realm, stands in this great vision before the very throne of God, and in the presence of this glory that he has been describing, he actually says, woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, and he's just flattened before God in his glory. Daniel, one of the greatest Old Testament saints, actually had multiple encounters with Gabriel, God's messenger. We met Gabriel in chapter one. There's no way to know for sure if Gabriel was this particular angel making this announcement. Maybe he was, could have been another one. But when Daniel encounters the presence of, of, of Gabriel, he says, I was frightened and fell on my face. The fourth and final example I'll give you is from Ezekiel, who was a young prophet when Israel was exiled to Babylon. He should have been ministering in Jerusalem, but he finds himself on the banks of a river outside Babylon. God gives him a vision of his glory, and Ezekiel describes it and says, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around this particular being, like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. So it's reasonable to conclude that these shepherds were experiencing a similar, uh, a, a similar sense of terrifying exposure and personal ruin in the radiance of God's glory. Again, it dispels kind of these sentimental scenes we create in our head uh, of the shepherds just peacefully there. You know, you can kind of hear the little music going in the background and the, the sheep grazing on the hillside and the, oh, look at the cherub who appeared. This is nice. This is good. No, it's horrific. Because in the radiance of God's glory, every one of those four people from the Old Testament who came into it were aware of their imperfections, their sin, their weakness, their unworthiness. We have no reason to assume that these shepherds felt anything other than that. It's good for us to ponder what would be exposed in our hearts and souls if an angel or the glory of God came into this room at this moment. And beloved, it would be brighter than the lights in the ceiling or even the sunshine coming through the windows here to the south. It would be a terrifying moment. 
what would be exposed. Hebrews 4.13 says that there is no creature in reality that is hidden from God's sight. But all, listen to these next two words, all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That is, we are accountable to him. And you may feel at this moment because you have physical clothing wrapped around your body and your soul is tucked conveniently somewhere beneath the surface of these garments that clothe you or you may feel that you have hidden away the secrets that family and friends don't really know these things but they're not hidden from God. He sees the secrets of your heart and mind as clearly and as openly as if we were fully naked and exposed before him at this moment. You see, like us, the shepherds were ordinary people with every reason to be terrified in the exposing radiance of God's glory. And that brings us to a third thought, a very important one. They are people who need a Savior. Look at verse 10. The angel said to them, and this is amazing, fear not. Really? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Let that just settle in your heart for a moment. Great joy? How could any of us have great joy when we're aware of great sin? How could any of us have great joy when, when the, the darkness that is resident within us is being exposed in the light of God's radiance and glory? But the angel says, this is good news of a great joy for all the people. Shepherds, yep. Young couples trying to sort it out, yep. Old saints who've lived most of their life barren but are now trying to deal with a newborn, yep. All people. And the specific news is this, unto you, and that's a plural you, unto you all is born this day in the city of David a Savior. What is a Savior? Well, it's a rescuer. It's one who saves from danger and destruction on the one hand. And in this case, because it has to do with a spiritual danger, a spiritual destruction that your sin will lead you inevitably to death and not just a ceasing to exist but actually will lead you to what the scriptures describe in another place as a second death where God's wrath falls on you, where God's condemnation and judgment fall on you and and there is eternal separation from God and eternal suffering awaiting. It's horrible, terrifying. But the Savior that is being described here has the power to rescue all 
from that kind of danger and destruction and not only just like bring them back to a neutral state, like, okay, you're on your own now, you're good. You know, you're not gonna experience all that horror. No, but he actually, actually takes those who put their faith in him into a state of security and peace, which is exactly where this angelic messenger is gonna take the good news in just a moment. So there is a sense, as another author writes, in which this statement is not only Christological in nature, that is, it's telling us about Mary's child who is born this night, but it's also anthropological. Now, that's a big fancy word that just, it, let, me, let me kind of break that down for you. It just, it's, it's saying something to you and me. There's more than just information about Jesus. What is, what is it saying? That the gospel readers, or in this case, the gospel hearers in a setting like this, both past and present, are the kind of people who need this Savior. And this is good news. But there's more. It's good news not just of God's Savior who will remedy sin, but who is Christ. Now, Christ is a title. I know there are a lot of people who think that Jesus has two names. Jesus is his first name and Christ is his second name. Christ is actually not a name. It's a title. It's an English translation and it came, yeah, ultimately through the, the biblical languages and some Latin and all of that. It just means the anointed one or the Messiah. Well, this is good news, not just that he is the Christ, but he's God's chosen one. He's the Messiah King that was promised from long ago. Can you remember all the way back? It's been more than a year when we were working through some key passages in Genesis, but one of the marvelous things, Genesis 3.15 is often described as the first gospel, and that's where God comes to Adam and Eve who just rebelled so horrifically against him, and the promise is not just that he's gonna spare their lives and kind of clean up their lives, but that he's gonna send a son through the woman, and the son will actually crush the head of the serpent who just tempted them and led them into sin. And that's when Adam actually gives his wife the name Eve. She wasn't Eve before that. And remember what Eve means? The mother of all living. Because through her, this Savior is gonna come. This is the prophet that Moses said, one greater than I is gonna come. And everybody's been waiting since Moses gave that prophet or or gave that promise. This is the great Davidic king who will establish David's throne once and for all that's been in jeopardy and ruins you know, for at least 500 years at this particular point. This is the one. But this is God's chosen one to be our savior. And then finally, the Lord. And this also is an adaptation of of an Old Testament term that spoke of God in his sovereignty, and you would know it perhaps with the English word Jehovah or Yahweh. What an astonishing piece of news this is. Now, in Luke's gospel, we're gonna encounter this term Lord over 20 times as we study through it, and to go back and grab one very important one, you remember when Mary was singing her song of praise at the end of chapter one, she actually says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So she counts herself among those who is in desperate need of a savior. The shepherds are certainly among those who desperately need a savior. And the angel's announcing he's the savior of all. Think of how many religions call upon people to work and make their way to God. But part of the good news is that God came down to us, came right to the doorstep 
entered the house, sat down, made his home amongst us, and said, let me tell you the way of salvation. So many religions of the world put all the pressure back on their adherents. Obey our law, serve God, keep your promises, perform the ordinances, give generously, get baptized, wear the approved clothing, avoid worldliness, and don't hang out with bad people. And then maybe, maybe, you'll end up with God forever. I read just devastating words uh, from some LDS teaching this week. This is actually from Spencer Kimball, who is long recognized as one of the most authoritative verses, uh, uh, authorities in that system. And in an article titled, Trying is Not Sufficient, he says this, Repentance is not complete when one merely tries to abandon sin. To try with a weakness of attitude and effort is to assure failure in the face of Satan's strong counteracting efforts. To try is weak. To do the best I can is not strong. We must always do better than we can. And I say, that's actually impossible. You must do better than you can. If, if what I can do is the limit of what I can do, how must I do better than that? I'm actually not any better off after trying that hard for however long that takes and still knowing I come up short. And let me just interject this. Jesus is not a savior who makes up that 10 or 20 or 50% shortfall. That's not the kind of savior he is and that's not the kind of gospel that's being revealed. Jesus actually enters the world, lives the perfect life of obedience that God requires of all of us and then trades our wicked, sinful, rebellious life for that perfect life and takes our imperfection and wickedness and rebellion on himself, dies the death we deserve on the cross so he gets punished for our crimes, we get the perfection of his life credited to our account, we get life, we get forgiveness, we get eternal with God the Father, he goes into the grave. Oh, but he comes out three days later, doesn't he? You see, he's not a savior who's going, oh, you're short 20% of perfection? Here, let me give you a little bit. He's everything. What a savior. What a gospel. So I say to some of you who labor under similar religious systems who, who know it's not really good news, who would say, it's crushing news. I can't possibly measure up. I know exactly what Spencer Kimball is talking about, and I know painfully that my trying is not sufficient. Oh, listen to this good news. And this is precisely why we need a savior. Do you remember all the way back to the series in Romans? Some of you are new. You weren't here when we went through that. But remember in chapter three, we came to verse 20 where Paul just says straight up, by works of the law, that is your own effort to obey enough, be good enough, serve enough, sacrifice enough. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law has a really important purpose. It's actually designed by God to frustrate you and me to the point where like, I'm a lawbreaker. Try my best. I can't do it. I always come short. Oh, now you're starting to get it and that's exactly where Paul goes. Verse 21, but now 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that's the irony, the, the law and prophets actually begin to point you and, and tell you about Jesus. Verse 22, he resumes the thought. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And listen to the next line. It's not a try harder. No, it's all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of savior that's being announced. The savior is gonna come and as I said, live the life we can never live and trade us his perfect life for our sinful life, die the death we deserve to do, but trade places with us there so that we receive this gift. It is glorious. It's good news because your religious effort and mine will never remove the sin and will never remove the fear. But God, through Jesus, does that. Now look at verse 12. And this is fitting. God receives all the glory for this good news. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. And they're praising God. Now, let me interject a quick thought here. The heavenly host are the servants of God. And throughout the Old Testament, they are referred to as the heavenly army of the Lord of hosts. That's another one of God's glorious titles. Lord Sabaoth. Uh, is the little Hebrew transliteration. We sing that in the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Lord, Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. Um, on, what is it? It's the next line. He must win the battle, right? Thank you. Yeah, he must. And to win his battles, he's also created and maintains quite an impressive army. That's who the heavenly hosts are. God is a warrior king, and he leads a massive army of warrior Beings And passages like Daniel 10 and 12 give us a glimpse of this where there's this great warfare that's going on. Daniel had prayed a prayer. It took three weeks for, uh, for uh, it's Michael, isn't it? Um, I should have looked at that a little more closely, who finally shows up and says, Daniel, you heard it. It just took me three weeks to get here because I was duking it out with the prince of Persia. And we all go, wait a second, time out. Need more explanation and information. God doesn't give us that information. Then you go all the way to Revelation 12, uh, verses seven, eight, and nine in prophecies. And I know this is Michael because I was just looking at this yesterday. The, the archangel and his angels will actually overthrow Satan and his angels at the end of the age. So sorry, that little precious moments angel that you keep on the mantle is not an accurate depiction of the heavenly host. <laughs> There's a fifth century hymn that actually has been traded, uh, translated into uh, English and their beautiful choral arrangements and you must add it to your Christmas playlist if it's not already there but it's that great hymn let all mortal flesh keep silence you know it I'm sure many of you do the third stanza tries to capture some of the marvel of this moment and I love these words <clears throat> rank on rank the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day, that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. 
A vanguard, and I know that's a term that's not commonly known to most of us, but a vanguard is the foremost part of advancing army. And this heavenly host really is Christ's vanguard because there is an invasion underway. Heaven's light, capital L, is penetrating this world's darkness and the life creator and the life giver is moving into a world of death that has resulted from sin and the prison walls of that sin are actually beginning to tremble because the Savior is born and his warrior army has come to announce his birth. Oh, it's a grand and glorious scene. And it's heaven's vanguard that cries, glory to God in the highest. That is all honor. The highest honor goes to him because of what is happening here at this moment. Now note the effect of the child's birth. The heavenly host declare God's peace on earth. The heavenly visitors, as one author writes, indicate that heaven is impressed by what God has achieved. But God is achieving peace And this is the Old Testament equivalent of shalom. It's more than just a a nice feeling. You might be at peace when you finish a a hard day's work and the task is done. You've had a good supper and you put your feet up and you turn on the TV and it's your favorite show. You're like, oh, what a peaceful evening. Now, this, this runs way beyond that. That might give you a little glimpse or just a little small taste. This is not simply the, an inner disposition uh, of you know, feeling good or the absence of war, but it actually, it actually means that there's a whole social order of well-being and prosperity and security and harmony that's being established. It's the peace we all long for. Our our pastors typically meet at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning for prayer. And as we prayed this morning, we were mindful that many of you, parents of the young ones who were singing, were scrambling to get them here on time. There was no shalom in your house or in your car. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many, how many of you may have actually raised your voice to motivate your children to get them here. And some of you may have already repented or need to repent right now because even elevating your voice, there was an angry spirit within you and you're like, how does this happen? We're going to church and I'm so angry, I could commit murder in this moment. You need Jesus. And we all do. But this is the grand announcement for those who feel that turmoil day in and day out, who know that both inside and outside, this world, this life, this existence is not the way it ought to be. And this warrior army comes and says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. God's peace is coming with those with whom he is showing his favor. And I think the point is he's showing his favor to, favor to the world. Oh, the shepherds are the initial recipients of this announcement, but if they, uh, an undesirable class of people, so oft discarded, not even wanted in the temple precincts for the typical worship, let alone a court of law, that they would be credible witnesses, if those overlooked outliers would be the objects of God's favor, then there's hope for the rest of us, and that's part of the point. The heavenly hosts are declaring There's a new social order coming with this king. Oh, wouldn't it be grand? I've been thinking, the next year is a presidential election. I'm like, God, deliver us. 
There is cause, though, to praise this same God in this present moment because Jesus has been born. And you know, in Luke's gospel, we're gonna get a little taste of the peace, the shalom that Christ brings as he preaches and teaches, as he heals and restores and even raises the dead. All those things that we are most fearful about and most confused by, Jesus begins to address them and and just pulls the curtain back a little bit to say, you wanna know what kind of king I am? You wanna know what kind of kingdom I'm bringing? Here it is. Oh, what a favor God is showing to humanity in the Savior. Now, the last little part, verses 15 through 20, I want you to see the exemplary response of the shepherds. First of all, they just believe the good news. You know, I, I, I was trying to picture this. You know, how long did this little announcement and, uh, you know, angelic, we often call it a choir. There's a dear old saint, years ago corrected me after I preached this early on in my pastoral minute. Well, the Bible doesn't actually say they sang. Okay. Maybe not. This announcement. How long did it last? Was there music? Did they chant? You know, were they, were they uh, attired in the heavenly armor and equipped with, you know, flaming swords? I, I don't know. That would be speculation. But it's almost like they say their thing and zip, zip they're gone. And look at the shepherds, though. Here they go. Let us go, and then the next verb, and see. Let's go and see. And Luke records, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. Here's the young couple and the baby lying in a manger. That's exactly what we were told. We just heard that a few moments ago. So they believe the good news. They're acting on it. And then verse 17, they share the good news. Well, of course, I mean, how would you possibly contain an experience like this? They can't, they won't. They make known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and that's curious to me. It's more than just like, hey, we were out on the hill, and and an angel appeared, and then there's a heavenly host, and then we went into Bethlehem, we saw this young couple, there's a baby there. No, they're actually recounting the things that were told them about the identity of this child. And verse 18 tells us, those who heard wondered, That is, they're amazed. They're they're marveling. Really? Is the Christ born here, Bethlehem? I wonder if you are amazed anymore by this story. Or if you read it or hear it in much the way we hear the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Oh, that's sweet. Hey, it's Christmas. We, somebody should read Luke 2. It's good to slow it down enough to where you can feel the drama. Feel the sense of urgency in your own soul as an outlier or as an unlikely recipient of this good news. That you feel your own heart overwhelmed not just by a sense of sin, but even the desperation. Jesus, if you don't come and rescue me, there's no life, there's no future, there's no hope. But these shepherds were changed forever, weren't they? And that brings me to the third point. They glorify and praise God for the good news. 
and return to the fields. I think that's kind of cool. Because on the one hand, everything changes in a moment, and yet life goes on. Say, what do you mean? Well, think about this. Luke even notes they, they're returning to their work. It's back to the fields because the sheep still have to be watched. And whatever contracts they had in place, maybe they were with the temple and the temple precinct in Jerusalem and maybe they were gonna send you know, newborn lambs uh, Jerusalem's direction. We don't know anything about that. But they go back to being shepherds. You know, if this happened to any one of us, we'd be setting up interviews and signing book deals and at a minimum posting the details in the hopes of it going viral. And then they'll monetize my Instagram feed. But they didn't stop being shepherds because the Savior was born. But I will tell you this, they were able to tend their flocks now knowing that God's lamb, their Savior, was born. Joseph's not gonna stop being a carpenter because the Savior is born. He'll still have to go out and secure contracts and work hard and sweat and he's still gonna have to pay those confounded Caesar taxes. But he'll live out his days confidently knowing his savior is in the world. Mary has the hard work of caring for this infant. She can't stop being a mom because the savior is born. And she like every other mom, is gonna work extremely hard, particularly in those early weeks, setting up nursing schedules and changing who knows how many hundreds of diapers or whatever they used in that day. And she, like every other mom of a newborn, is gonna wish for eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. But she'll do it all with a joyful confidence that her Savior is born. And that's the power of the good news. Dear friend, it may not alter the immediate course of your life to where you have a new job, a new life, a new house or neighborhood, or, but it will alter the trajectory of your life where you, like the shepherds, like the angels, like Mary in chapter one, and Zechariah and so many others will sing and praise to God because the Savior is born. No wonder Luke opens this gospel by stating, oops, too far. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You can be certain today that there is a Savior. You can be certain today that your sins are forgiven. You can be certain today that your eternity is secure. You can be certain today that your life matters, even in the most ordinary and challenging circumstances. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together.
Dear friend, do you know him? And in knowing him, do you know how much he loves you? Do you live with a certainty that he is who he says he is, that he has done what he tells us he has done? Do you know? We all need a Savior, but that Savior has been given. If you've never put your faith in him, do it right now. Just tell him what's in your heart. Jesus, I'm a wreck. I know I'm a sinner. I've done things that I'm just so embarrassed by. I feel such deep shame. Would you save me from my guilt? Save me from my sin? Save me from my shame? Be my savior. Just a simple prayer of faith like that. And he responds. He will, I promise you. I know that out of my own experience, you're seated among hundreds of others who would, who would testify to that same powerful experience. Some of you are in hard circumstances and you wonder where God is. But you know, if he could use the hard circumstances surrounding Mary and Joseph at that moment to get them exactly where he needed them to be so that they could fulfill the purposes he gave from long ago, he will get you where you need to be. Will you trust him? Will you just surrender all that frustration you're feeling at the moment? It, it may be like Joseph's. It's lost work. It's not a convenient time. It may be the pressure of a wife who is due and you're saying, how, how do we care for this baby? It may be a different set of circumstances, but there are things that stress you. Will you just give that to the Lord? Will you stop trying to be Lord and God of your life because you're not. You're doing a poor job of it than you want to admit right now, but God knows that. Everybody else around you knows it, so give up and give it to God. I don't know what the specific need in your heart is, but God knows, the Spirit knows. That's why they're talking to you right now and calling you. Come to me. Come. Believe. Come, rest. Come, receive. Come and rejoice. Loving Father, sweet Savior, and Sovereign Spirit, would you summon from this room right now all who need to come. And would you lead them mercifully down the path of repentance and faith that they would know the same joy. Bind up those who are so deeply wounded they feel they're just a dead person walking.
comfort those whose sorrow has engulfed them. Save us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.